The misconception is that an addict is a person who's not functioning. I think people's stereotype of an addicted person is someone who's homeless, of someone who can't have a job, of someone who is really not able to live day-to-day -day life. And this is just not true. There are plenty of very, very quote-unquote high-functioning people who are drunk or high or completely disconnected from themselves every single day of their lives. And um, people on the outside may not necessarily know. That's Dr. Lisa Lewis on understanding addiction in high performers. And this is episode 118 of the Aligned Performance Podcast. If you are a returning listener to the show, then welcome. And if you are a new listener, then welcome to this community. If you don't already know, my name is Trang. I am a purpose and performance coach and speaker and your host for the show. And I am currently back in the world after the weekend. <laughs> if you haven't seen, over the weekend, I ran a summit. It was Life of Legacy, a two-day summit for women to step into their highest power and to create their legacy on this world. And it was the most phenomenal weekend, the best summit I've run yet the, the results, the transformations, the caliber and the connection between the women at this summit was something that I've never experienced or I've never witnessed uh, in my previous summits. So on Monday, I spent so much time at the beach sitting, processing, reflecting and feeling love and gratitude and awe and also crashed. It's been a very challenging time actually leading up to the summit. I had to actually change the summit uh, from three days to two days last minute due to life events that came up. Um, so yeah, really processing all of this and allowing it all to land, um, allowing it all to land and really resting since the summit. But now I'm here and I'm very excited to share this conversation with you with Dr. Lisa Lewis. Lisa is a licensed psychologist and a certified addictions counselor who helps her clients achieve personal, professional, and athletic goals. And this conversation is talking about addiction in high performance because I know for myself, I used to have a very particular image of what addicts looked like. And I never would have thought that it could very well be a debilitating or a challenging aspect in high performers who are functioning very well in society. And I think sharing this conversation and topic will shed a light on how addiction works, how it looks, how it feels. So if you are a high performer who may be experiencing this, you can have awareness. And once you have awareness, then you can enact change. So in this conversation, Lisa shares what addiction is in high performers the biggest misconception about addicts. What makes a behavior an addiction versus not? Physiological or chemical changes in the body that might cause addiction. The effects of genetics on addiction. Resourceful versus unresourceful addictions in high performers. And the steps to overcome addiction. This is an in-depth conversation, one that I learned so much from and I hadn't ever really thought about. So I really hope that this will be the same for you. So wherever you are in the world, whatever you are doing as you are listening to this, I really hope that you enjoy and gain a lot from this. 
So let's get into it. This is my conversation with Dr. Lisa Lewis. Lisa Lewis, welcome to the Alliance Performance Podcast, or welcome back, I should say, because this isn't our first podcast episode that we've done together, is it? <laughs> no, it's great to be back and to reconnect after, I think you said three years have passed since we last spoke. Yeah, it has been. So 2019, for anyone who hasn't um, been following for that long, was the last time that we got together to have a chat. Um, that was on my previous podcast, the Athletes Garage podcast. And um, that episode, we spoke about optimizing psychology for athletes. And it was an extremely popular episode. So I'm really looking forward to getting together and talking about something a little bit different today, mm-hmm. understanding addiction in high performers, so relevant for high performing individuals, high performing women who want to apply themselves to, you know, rigorous routines so that they can achieve big outcomes, achieve extraordinary careers and businesses. And this is really relevant. Mm -hmm. Yes. And something that has taken me many years to get familiar with. Um, So for, for people who don't know me, my career started Back in 2003, I started with a master's degree in counseling psychology and focused in addictions and worked in addictions for uh, maybe 10 years, eight to 10 years, um, and got a specialty in that area and and, uh, got really familiar with what kind of the classical addictions look like, alcohol, opiate addiction, and so on. And then kind of towards the end of those years, I went back to school and earned a doctoral degree in sports psychology. And that had a focus in optimal performance and high achievement and really thriving. And so in working with those folks and the, and, and a lot of athletes, I got to see the overlap between um, behaviors that are highly regarded in society, like being really hardworking and diligent and persistent and enduring pain and overcoming odds and how self-destructive or addictive behavior can get really woven in to Mm. becoming one of those people that we highly revere in our society. And ironically, once I finished all of my training and then ended up out of my own in private practice, what I started getting that I wasn't necessarily marketing were people who presented with both of those characteristics, being really high performing, super duper successful, type A, kind of rock stars in life, and then having something going on that they felt out of control of, whether that was drinking or eating or workaholism or sex addiction or shopping, gambling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Um, So over the last seven or eight years that I've been working for myself, I work most often with this kind of presentation. And I think what's so tricky about it is that people who are highly successful and who have worked hard and achieved a lot have done so despite being tired, being hungry, being lonely, being exhausted they have persisted even though their bodies and their minds sometimes have told them to stop. And so I think that many high achievers um, don't, don't have an accurate read on when it's time to recover, when it's time to rejuvenate, um, because more has been more. Like 
work harder, study harder, push harder has really gotten them far in life. So by the time I'm meeting mm. people and they're in their 30s or their 40s or their 50s and they've achieved high heights, they're coming like so burnt out or so so focused on achievement that their relationships have suffered, their physical health has suffered, and they need to basically learn or relearn how to take good care of themselves. Um, so that's where I see high performance and addiction overlapping. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Lisa. And I think that's really important to start with because I know for myself, I previously wouldn't have associated high performing with addiction. I would have thought it was like two separate things. Like, you know, I've got a particular image of what addiction would look like versus high performing. Um, so thank you for starting with that. And we'll get into that for sure. Um, and I'm really glad that you you shared, you know, how you got to where you are now. Like that was going to be my next question. So thanks for making my job easier, Lisa. <laughs> um, I do want to actually take a step back. And I'm really curious, you know, was there anything that you experienced personally or anything that you observed that inspired you to focus on addiction in in your studies when you first started out that's so actually if i'm telling the truth i wanted nothing to do with addiction i didn't take any classes on it when i was getting my master's degree and i just kind of ended up in it because my first job after i finished my master's was in a hospital where there was inpatient psychiatry and then there was detox so i worked in kind of both of those units. And then when I moved to Boston and I was hunting for a job, I applied for a job on the psychiatry unit of a hospital. And I went to the interview and they're like, Oh no, your interview's not here. It's up on the 10th floor. And I was like, Oh, what's on the 10th floor. And that's where the substance abuse treatment facility was. And I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> no, I didn't think that that was for me. And, um, I had an interview with an amazing person who basically got me interested in taking the job. And it was probably the most powerful, influential thing that has happened in my entire career, because number one, I really fell in love with the work. This is a mental health and really a brain condition that can go into full blown remission and people can change their lives, which is not true for all mental health conditions. And mm -hmm. just the way that people have to dig deep and work on themselves and strive to improve and take a good hard look at themselves, it's unbelievably satisfying to be a part of that process. Um, and mm -hmm. then getting into the work and specializing in the work has served me in every other area of my life. So I talk about motivation, of course, to fitness professionals all the time. That is deeply connected to my understanding of behavior change, you know, and healthy habits. Um, and then I have in my private practice, this whole kind of sect of people I work with who are dealing with perfectionism, workaholism, you know, obsession with, with high achievement, which is another kind of presentation of addiction. So I totally like backed into it accidentally. Um, and it, it really has had like an unbelievably positive effect on my entire career. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we were, we were just speaking about this before we hit record about how some of the most incredible paths that our lives go down happen 
accidentally in some ways, you know, unexpectedly because an opportunity arises, a door opens that we decide to walk through. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's very much been the case with you, it sounds like, Lisa. Um, And I think what you said about addiction as well um, and the ability for individuals to look within and and do the work on themselves, it's very empowering. And I think that's a great perspective to have because, yeah, like sometimes it can feel like, it's out of our own control um, when when we've got such a strong pull towards something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what you've shared is is the perfect perspective going into it, um, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so over, over the years, Lisa, that you have been, you know, focusing and, and working with individuals experiencing um, addiction, what I want to start off with is asking you, what's a big misconception about addiction or people with addiction that you've found over these years? The misconception is that an addict is a person who's not functioning. I think people's stereotype of an addicted person is someone who's homeless, of someone who can't have a job, of someone who is really not able to live day-to-day life. And this Mm. is just not true. There are plenty of very, very quote-unquote high-functioning people who are drunk or high or completely disconnected from themselves every single day of their lives. And um, people on the outside may not necessarily know what's going on for them. So addiction really is more of a qualitative set of um, experiences, thoughts, and feelings than drinking X amount per day or using Y substance. So it's not just the person who's using IV heroin daily. It's not just the person who's drinking a handle of vodka every day. Yes, there is physical dependence and addiction there, but you know, in a more global way, addiction includes number one, mental preoccupation with something. It could be a behavior, it could be a substance. And when I say mental preoccupation, what I mean by that is how much brain space does it take up for, for somebody? So for example, food, let's take food addiction person could have a food addiction and not be obese, but spend 99% of their waking hours thinking about what am I going to eat today? What am I not going to eat today? How much am I going to eat? What time am I going to eat? Am I going to have this? What am I going to do when I'm offered that? Oh, I can't wait to have this. So if their mind is so flooded with thoughts of eating or not eating or drinking or not drinking, um, that is part of what addiction is. When somebody chooses to, to engage in the addictive behavior of substance over other important things in life, like spend time with friends or go to family functions or go to work, that is also a sign of addiction. And then finally, when people use something to cover up their pain, when the addiction is a means to an end. So for example, when I drink, my anxiety goes away and I can talk to people at parties, or when I drink, I numb the depression and I can get away from it. Or when I'm working hard all the time, I don't have to spend time with my significant other and I'm making lots of money. So he or she is off my back, right? So when when the behavior Mm -hmm. is a means to some kind of end, when it's a medication or an escape, that's another way that we think about addiction. So I think this misconception is, that it's this one stereotype 
and it really glazes over all the different ways that people um, use a behavior or a substance for some other reason than just like enjoying, you know, a glass of wine or enjoying a delicious meal or something like that. Yeah. And that, that makes sense. It's like this, this misconception, what's stereotypically seen as um, someone who's addicted. It's, it's because those are the people who you see or you hear about um, versus everyone else who may have addictions, but they're, they're functioning in society. So you wouldn't know about it. So they're, you know, it, it kind of goes under the radar. Right. That makes sense. That's right. And yeah. when, when we're talking about high achievers, um, we revere people who are workaholics, you know, and we, um, you know, right now my husband and I are watching this show industry on HBO and it is a whole bunch of bankers who are super duper wealthy and have this like really high status, high earning job. And like the degree to which they are drinking and using cocaine and ecstasy and other substances, like is bonkers. It's like off the chart, how heavy drug and alcohol use and how much addiction is represented on that show. But it's normal mm. in that setting, right? Like that's part of banking. Or I've heard people say to me, my own clients, like, if you're in hedge fund, you just have to entertain. Or if you're in sales, you have to be a heavy drinker. And so there's all these ways in which our culture does this like smoke and mirrors of, oh, that's not addiction. That's normal behavior when actually um, it 100% is. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting. And what you were saying before about qualitative traits, in some ways, what you mentioned, um, you know, so- something that preoccupies someone's mind or they choose to do it instead of something else. Yeah. Like that's hard to measure. <laughs> that that makes it challenging to, yeah. I would think, more challenging to measure, more challenging to recognize. What would have been your experiences with that? Yeah. So, and that's a lot of people come to me with that, like, I don't think I have a problem, but the but might be, but sometimes I drink more than I want to. So I'm hoping in working Mm. with you, you know, there's like five times a year where I like black out and cheat on my wife and I want to stop that, but I want to continue with, you know, every other day of the week, the way I drink is just fine. That might Mm. be a presentation or, or somebody might not even have awareness that, that, that there's a, addictive behavior there, but they come in because in some way they are experiencing distress, impairment, um, or a feeling of guilt or shame about something they're doing. So shame for me is like one of the hallmarks of addiction that the person experiences like a feeling that they are bad because they're doing what they're doing. And, and in particular, I think with food addiction, this is very prevalent. So one person could eat a bag of Doritos and the next day be like, oh, that bag of Doritos was good. I probably shouldn't eat the whole thing, whatever. Another person will eat the bag of Doritos and the next day, like I'm a failure, I'm a piece of shit. Like, I can't believe I did that. I'm so disgusting, right? So the quality of that feeling is very different even though both people did the same behavior, you know? So Mm. so when I'm getting to know people, I'm listening for what comes up for them around a behavior. Is there shame? Is there hiding 
sneaking? Is it like a secret? You know, so like when I meet people who say, I do three shots at my house before I go out for a night of drinking with my friends just to like kill the anxiety and like, like socially lubricate me. And like, I don't tell anybody about that, you know, cause that would be weird. So that little like secret keeping is also a component to think about. So there are these little qualities and characteristics that make people feel bad that are part of what addiction does, which is, you know, it takes a toll on your self-esteem and it takes a toll on the way that you see yourself. Um, and people don't necessarily think about food as an addiction uh, unless somebody's obese, but there are plenty of people who are not obese. And even in fitness, I mean, Tran, you maybe have seen this yourself, people who are very, very fit and who are obsessed, preoccupied with food and eating and their nutrition in a way that is, feels very obsessive and unhealthy. Yeah, that's an interesting point that, you know, it's multifactorial. There are different aspects to it and, you know, how someone feels about their, you know, these patterns is, is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. That kind of reminds me of, <laughs> this is very niche, in physiotherapy, there's a diagnosis for hip pain um, called FAI, which yeah. is femoral acetabular impingement. Yeah. And yeah, you've heard of it. And, and part of the diagnosis is that there must be pain. Not exactly this is what's happening in your hip. This is what your, what your scans show in your hip. Because heaps of people can have the exact same, you know, small space in their hip joint. But unless there's pain, then the diagnosis isn't actually going to be accurate. That's not the diagnosis. Uh-huh. Is, is it a similar case where it's like, you know, a presentation in some ways, you can describe it like that, can be the same across two different people, but how they feel about it and, you know, shame that they carry about that pattern of behavior, that that denotes kind of whether or not it's a problem or whether it's an addictive behavior. You got it. Bingo. That's a beautiful way to say it. And actually in the past, I used to teach abnormal psychology and students would ask me every semester. So what's the difference between somebody who's like, you know, is a little nervous or gets down or or has like these tendencies and somebody who has OCD or major depression. And I would say distress and impairment. So are they in pain? And can they function, right? And so Mm. I I think that your focus on pain is a really good one, particularly with addiction. And there's a really famous, it's an old book. I think the author's last name is Toll, T-O-L-L-E. And he, there's a beautiful little excerpt in his book that basically says all addictions begin with pain and end with pain. And the behavior is escape or medication for the pain but in order to recover from the addiction, it's not just putting down the medicine that, that it's like actually dealing with and healing your pain. So his whole Mm. thing is exactly what you're saying. It's all about the pain and you know, you have to deal with the underlying pain, not just abstain from whatever it was that was helping you with that pain. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. <laughs> I was saying to you before the um, before we started recording that like I'm so fascinated by this. Um, so like I'm loving hearing all of your responses to this, and this is going to be so interesting and give so much to the listeners as well. Well, um, can I can yeah. I say one more thing? Yes, I'm just thinking about Please. your AI um, like parallel, and I love that because. I myself had a hip injury and dealt with a lot of hip pain and I wanted to know so badly like what it was. I wanted the scans. I wanted the imaging. Like three years I went to different people and ultimately it wasn't just about relieving the pain. Like I could get dry needling, I could get massage, whatever. But ultimately what got me out of that was getting a lot stronger, you know, in my glutes and my glute knees, getting my core stronger so like really identifying where the imbalances were and building up those strengths so that my hip could be safe, like back in its acetabulum was ultimately <laughs> what cured me. I mean, really, you know, it's been years now that I've had healthy hips. So I just love that metaphor that you gave. And, and the same <laughs> thing is true in addiction. It's not just getting out of pain. It's it's actually finding out where the deficits and the weaknesses and imbalances are and then helping recovery is about creating really wholeness and strength and resilience so that the person has full range of motion and healthy functioning. <laughs> I love the analogies that we're bringing out, both of us being big into training. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's it's not just about treating the uh, or working with the symptoms, like what is present at the time, it's it's going to the root of the problem yeah. and all the different pillars that contribute to the problem. Okay. Yes, and uh, and that is that can be painstaking for some people, you know, like especially people who a lot of people grapple with why is this a problem for me, you know, and a lot of people will say to me, my life has been good, like. What's wrong with me that I can't knock this off? Like I have so much to be grateful for. Other people have it so much worse than me. This is like a very, very common thing that people will say to me is like, like basically saying like, I'm being a jerk or an idiot, or I'm being weak for having this problem because other people have it worse than me. And this mm. is like, first of all, extremely unuseful, unproductive. It's like, and secondly, every single person on earth suffers, you know, and the comparison is just does nothing to, to help solve the problem. So getting to the root of the problem, whether it was something really intense and really horrible and really acute, you know, capital T trauma, or if it was like going through middle school, you know, and being bullied, like you know, like everybody in life has little T or lowercase T trauma. All of us go through bad experiences that leave burdens or wounds on our heart. And we learn to cope with those. And plenty of people learn to cope with bad feelings by relying on a behavior or a substance to get away from that, you know, to numb that out. Mm. <sighs> Are there, you know, what are the internal physiological changes, if any, that might be seen when it comes to addictive behaviors? Like, is there anything that changes like in the nervous system, the brain, the body? Yes. So right now, you know, the, the National Alliance for Mental Health, the, uh, the National Institute for, um, what is it called? Drug 
it's a weird, it's called NIDA, National Institute for Drug and Alcohol um, Addiction, maybe that, yeah, N-I-D-A-A. Right now, addiction is recognized as a brain disease. And the reason why is that there are changes, there are structural and functional changes that occur in the brain when somebody becomes addicted. And now that we can do brain imaging, we can really show that, we can show differences between an addicted brain and a non-addicted brain. So there's been a large push in the scientific community to recognize, for everyone to recognize that this is not about someone's character. This is not about their moral value. It's not about them being a weak or a strong person. No, this is a condition that develops in the brain that affects the way the brain is structured and the way the brain functions, which means it affects how the person thinks, how the person feels and how the person behaves, period. So I am not an expert in uh, neurology or you know neuroscience. So I can't speak to like all of the amazing nuances. Um, but the main thing I can say is that every single addiction has to do with dopamine. Whether it's you're addicted to Twizzlers or you're addicted to heroin, the commonality there is that your dopaminergic system is dramatically impacted. And um, for people who don't know a lot about the brain, dopamine controls motivation, our sense of reward, the way that we feel driven to things. So sometimes people think about dopamine as it relates to pleasure. And, and yes, that is true, but bigger than pleasure, I guess a more global way is like our motivation. Like what do we care about? What do we spend time pursuing and trying to obtain? Um, and so everything that is addictive can hijack that dopaminergic system and affect the way that it functions so that there's only one thing, you know, that gives you that reward feeling, which is right now we're seeing more people addicted to pornography and addicted to video games. Same thing is happening. It's like that dopaminergic system is getting reward only in that activity. And then when the person's not doing that activity, the brain's just firing. Like, when are we getting back to that activity? So it's, it's very profound how the brain is affected. And I think we've learned a lot that's really helped to reduce some of the stigma, but there's way more, I think, that we're going to learn about how this gets going and then how to arrest this process once it gets into place and help people to recover. Because despite great advances, there still is a mortality rate in addiction. There are people who will die because of their addiction to different substances. Yeah. So this, this dopamine reliance or um, this dopamine pattern when it comes to certain behaviors, is there any, I don't know if this is actually, um, if there's evidence on this or anything, but is there any suggestion whether it's like any genetic component versus is it purely something that becomes developed over a lifetime of, of behaviors? Yeah. So there is a genetic, there is some predisposition um, for like alcohol, alcoholism, for example, Um, so we know that there is a genetic component to addiction, but, um, behavior is a really strong factor to take into account. And if you're interested in this or people who are listening are really interested in this, there's a few recommendations I have. One is there's a woman who wrote a book. I'm going to, I have to Google it to remember what it's called. Uh, well, it's called dopamine nation, but I can't remember what her name is. Um, she is a doctor out of Stanford. 
and her name is Anna Lemke, L-E-M-B-K-E. So Anna Lemke um, writes about addiction to social media, you know, addiction to mm. video games, addiction. So she takes this really global view and she is just like absolutely fantastic speaker, writer, like any way you slice it. So that's, that's a really good source if you want to learn more about what's going on in the brain with all kinds of addictive behaviors. And then the other resource I really like is the Huberman Labs podcast. Um, so Andrew Huberman is also a professor out of Stanford, and he does a podcast on all different subjects, but he's had Anna Lemke on, and he's had at least three other researchers on to talk about addiction and the brain and dopamine motivation, you know, how the dopaminergic system is impacted, um, by addiction to different things. So, um, for people who are curious to learn more after our talk today, I think those are two really great resources. Yeah. And I'll, I'll put those resources in the podcast description okay. so people can access it easily. Okay. Yeah. I, I like that you've, you know, described different examples, um, or you, you've touched on different examples of addiction addictions um in the context of high performers what are mm-hmm. yeah what is the context and what are the different examples of addiction addictions that may be resourceful versus unresourceful mm-hmm. so um i work with athletes sometimes um and one of the ones i see is addiction to achievement and this can happen in the mm. world too but like the way that the individual has learned to like be seen and to take up space and to feel special is to have achievement is to earn something. And probably when they were young, they got a lot of um, love and approval from their parents or from teacher, you know, people around them. And so this striving for really high achievement at all costs And so what I mean by that is I have worked with athletes who are in unbelievable pain, who have injuries that like, I wouldn't be able to walk if I had the injury and they are participating Mm. in professional sports, you know? So this level of doing something that is really harmful, that is really painful because who am I, if I'm not winning, if I'm not that special, you know, star in the spotlight. So I see that in this really extreme, clear black and white way with athletes, but I think in more nuanced ways, I also see that with people who are working in environments, like I've brought up banking a couple of times, like hedge fund, investment banking. Um, I'm working with somebody right now who's very, very senior leadership um, in an area of medicine that is like unbelievably competitive the environment is so toxic. It's like very, very high pressure. The expectation is that you're working around the clock. Everybody in the industry is miserable, but like everybody perpetuates this. You have to work this much. You have to publish papers. You have to earn this much money. You have to have to have to. And that creates this dependence on needing to earn a certain amount in order to feel worthy, needing to publish a certain amount of papers in order to feel like you've earned your place. And ironically, what happens for a lot of these high achievers is that they develop an imposter phenomenon, sometimes referred to as the imposter syndrome, where even though they have done these outrageously outstanding things, 
there's a part of them that feels like they're a total phony and at any moment they're going to be found out. And this does not happen to like beginners or people who are like just fine with being average performers. This happens to people who ironically are, are as far away from an imposter as can possibly be. Um, and so that I have learned that the imposter phenomenon all often presents itself when somebody is really has a mental preoccupation with success and achievement um, that has brought them great stress or just like damage to their psyche. Um, and and I, I think that's another way to think about addiction. It's like doing something that's hurting you and you continue doing it despite adverse consequences. You know, you keep it up even though it makes you sad or miserable or angry or depressed. Um, so like that's kind of one of the generic definitions of addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. But I'm sure mm. you and me and everybody else listening can think of things we have done in our life. <laughs> like, you know, continued <laughs> every single runner out there is like, oops, like I continued, <laughs> even though I have all these different injuries and it hurts and I'm, you know, I'm overtrained, you know, all of that. So again, let me, let me say now, I'm not telling everybody out there that they have like a legitimate addiction and they need treatment. But what I do want to say is that addiction exists along a spectrum and that if you have a behavior that's sneaky and that you kind of lie about or that you do, even though like it messes you up, like it's probably, it might be okay. You know, like, you know, all of us probably have times where we eat too many Doritos and then feel bad about it or go on a shopping spree and then are like, Ooh, you know, so not to pathologize. There's probably plenty in the spectrum of normal, healthy behavior. The problem becomes when the only thing in life that can bring you pleasure or joy is that behavior, or when you need escape so badly from your life that you're just over-relying um, on this one substance or behavior. Am I going on too much of a tangent? I'm sorry. Not at all. This is really helpful because it sounds like it's it's great for you to be describing it in this detail because there's no lines. There's no black or white. That's right. It It's like, you know, striving for high levels of achievement is absolutely resourceful because if you don't have that drive at all, then you're just going to be sitting around doing nothing all day. Right. But they can be taken to the other extreme where it can get to the point where it's like actually doing you less good than it is doing you good. Bingo. So like what's the what's the pro con there at the end, right? So one of the things yeah. I like to have people do when they're questioning is to do something called a decisional matrix. This is like an old school cognitive behavioral exercise where you basically put pros and cons on like the, the X axis and then like drinking, not drinking on the Y axis. So there's four quadrants and I have people write, okay, what are the benefits? Like, what do you get out of drinking? What's good about it? What's nice about it? What do you enjoy? And then what are the drawbacks? What are the hard parts? What are the consequences? And then I have them say, okay, if you're not drinking, what are the benefits of that? What's good about that? What do you enjoy about that? And then what's bad about that? What do you have to give up? What do you have to let go of? Um, and really help them flesh out exactly what you just said. Like, 
it, is this an overall positive or an overall negative in my life? Mm. Um, and, and I think what happens is we tend to, people will tend to say, well, I just like, what's my problem? Why haven't I stopped doing this? Why haven't I stopped binge eating? Like, I know it's getting my way and holding me back. Like, well, let's explore the reasons why you're not, because there might be some good ones in there. If it's the way that you feel comfort, if it's the way you feel stress relief, if it's the way you soothe yourself, you know, when you're alone, those are all legitimate things. I wonder if there's other ways we could help you to meet those needs so that you have another option than just food, you know? And if we do have another option than food, it just makes it feel like less of the only choice you have. You know, it takes the judgment out of it. Like, no, it's not that you're a bad or stupid or weak person. It's that this substance or this behavior is serving other purposes than just yeah. calories or, you know, whatever example it may be. So I think it's, that is like foundational to dealing with the problem is seeing like, what are the pros and cons? And is this a net gain or a net loss for me? And if it's a net loss, what is keeping me engaging with this behavior? Mm. Sounds like such a um, resourceful activity to do because, yeah, like if there's something that preoccupies your mind most of the day, like a lot of our mind is in mental activities unconscious until we actually sit down and, and flesh it out. We might not even realize. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that for all kinds of behavior change. So people who are trying to start exercising or people who want to quit smoking or people who want to stop snacking, like it could be anything really. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a useful exercise uh, because most of us, and those of us who are coaches and helpers too, right? Like we want to help our clients make the decision and say like, well, of course you should do less of the thing that's harming you. But when we do that, we don't leave enough room for people to be able to talk honestly about what the things are that hold them back or that keep them doing a behavior that part of them wants to stop you know ambivalence is yeah. really important to give air time to are there any other addictive behaviors that are commonly seen in high performers so you mentioned the addiction to achievement itself what else have you noticed I think of perfectionism and this is me anecdotally like this is not in a book or anything this is just coming from Lisa is I think perfectionism is a type of you know chasing something um, so that you'll feel good enough so that you'll prove yourself um, to like escape the pain of the feeling of not being good enough or not having worth or value. So I put that in there just, I think just from my own history of working with, with people who are high achievers, I think, you know, workaholism, of course I had a, I used to have a supervisor many years ago who used the expression rage or that somebody's a rageaholic. And what she was referring to is people who are like anger, 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 like all yeah. the time. And, and there are people in really high pressure, high stress jobs who just really operate with being pissed off. And I, I actually very recently worked with a client, unbelievably high achieving, successful man. And as we were working on some trauma, he was like, I'm afraid that if I heal from this, I will lose my anger because my anger really helps me 
to like do really, really well and be an ass kicker in my work. And so we had to kind of pause and like deal with that. Like, what would it be like if you weren't angry and what are the pros and cons of, you know, having it versus maybe healing it, you know? And it was very profound for him to be able to talk about like how that would help him to channel energy and how that would help him to feel so motivated and so driven and that really his anger like served him well a lot in, in his life. Um, and, and then ultimately for him to be able to, to get to a place of saying like, I will still be energized and hardworking and diligent, even if I'm not angry. Now I couldn't tell him that he really needed to hash that out for himself. But I remember as we were talking about this, I thought about my old mentor supervisor who would talk about rageaholics, you know, people addicted to being in that really heightened, angry state. Um, so I think that's another one. Of course, I think alcoholism and, and alcohol abuse is so common. Um, it is this like to totally socially accepted drug and pretty accepted in a lot of cultures to binge drink. Um, and it's a very poisonous, toxic drug. Actually, there are plenty of other drugs that are much safer and less toxic to the body. And there, there's a very high level of acceptance, especially among high achieving, I would say, in the banking world. A couple of years ago, I was asked to work for a law firm um, to come like in-house and, and work with lawyers that were in a law firm. And as I was interviewing for that, they shared with me literature on how common alcoholism is in the field of law. Um, and so I think in many high stress, high pressure, high status professions, alcoholism is there and it's, it's not recognized because the person's earning money and they're doing everything quote unquote, right on the outside. Mm. Um, yep. and, and like things like cocaine are still around, you know, they're still, um, they're still quite popular. To my surprise, I still will meet people who will present, um, who are very high functioning and in the business world. And it's like part of what goes on, you know, entertaining clients and that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. It's like, I think a lot of these things, you know, people logically, intellectually, they're like, yeah, why would I want to be addicted to rage? Or why would I want to be addicted to, you know, these certain drugs or alcohol, but then unconsciously, like, they're they're still relying on that because it serves them in in one way or another and then they they keep coming back to it just like what you share before with with your client yeah. it's like it helps him achieve um and or it could be anything else so i think you know illuminating this will allow people to rise up above it and you mentioned before the four quadrants exercise so what was the name of that one was there a name oh yeah the decisional matrix you're talking about yes yeah. decisional matrix so that's going to help people you know, illuminate whether a, a pattern in their life is worthwhile or not. Then from there, what are the steps that people can take to overcome the addiction that they're currently facing? Mm -hmm. So that's such a, like, could be such a broad spectrum of behaviors or, yeah. So, you know, the way I meet a lot of people now, um, They'll just reach out to me and say, like, I think something's up with my eating, my 
relationships or sex life. My pornography is another one I see a lot of with, with younger professionals right now, just to explore and unpack and talk with somebody. And so of course I am biased because I am a therapist. I think that talking to a mental health professional is like a really safe, great way to just allow some curiosity for yourself. Like what's going on, not to receive a diagnosis, not to have somebody say, yes, you have it or yes, you don't. Cause like you said, there are no lines. Like if you are physically mm. dependent and you require detox, yes, that is a line, but it is not the only line. So going to talk to somebody in a way that you can be honest, you can be open, you can explore the dynamics of what you like about it, what you don't like about it, kind of unpack that decisional matrix. I think that is so worthwhile because it really gives you the opportunity to spend some time unpacking like what's going on here and what don't I like about this? Like what is giving me, what is, what is raising my concern um, or bringing up guilt, shame, et cetera. So I think that's one way if people are listening and they're like, Oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Like, learn stuff, you know, go, I mean, the internet and social media, no, it's not all wonderful and amazing, but there's so much information out there now. Like there's awesome podcasts about sobriety and recovery. There's really great books. There's, um, all kinds of different communities. It's, there's not just 12 step anymore. And I do like 12 step. There's, you know, AA, OA, GA, NA, Al-Anon, you know, there's all kinds all kinds of addictions but if that's not your bag there's other kinds of wonderful communities that are out there in support of helping people take a look at what they're doing and if that serves them or not so you could also spend some time in the privacy of your own home looking around online for different resources and listening to other people who have been through something similar or reading something you know, so just that kind of like data collection mode, I think could be helpful. Yeah. And that gives everyone the opportunity to take steps according to the pace that they're ready for. Like they can start at home with, with a quick search online, mm -hmm. as well as, you know, talking to someone or joining a community, which you said, and that's, that's got to be a huge one, you know, like being surrounded by people who support you and believe in you and, um, allowing you to express um, whatever you're going through. Right. An another big part of addiction is being alone, feeling like nobody go has gone through what you've been through. Nobody feels how you feel. Nobody knows what this is like. And so a big mm. part of treatment and recovery is the, the opposite, which is being connected, which is learning that there are other people who've been through exactly what you've been through and know how you feel. Um, and that you can be with those people, whether it's virtually or in person, um, in Boston here, there's a great little running club that everybody's in recovery and every year they do like a training and then they run the Boston marathon and it's just really sweet. They're all people who would say like they're addicted to running now. Um, but they all support each other in that and spend time together, you know, doing sober activities and it's really it's really fabulous. Mm, love that. All right. We are getting to the end of the episode yeah. now, Lisa. Um, 
This has been such a great conversation. What I do want to wrap up with are actually five rapid fire questions so that everyone can get to know you from a little bit of a different angle. (laughs) Yeah, you've just sat up straight for those who are listening, like you're ready to go. (laughs) Okay, number one, mornings or nights? Mornings, 100%. Yeah, I'm not surprised. How how early for you five. is it, is it? five a.m. five yeah yeah that's when I get up and yeah. I train I have my husband has been kind enough he does mornings with my little one so I open my eyeballs and I have like like an annoying amount of energy so I also think my husband's like I want you to take that out of here <laughs> like practice <laughs> morning people and I get that's when I get to train and um you know use a lot of that energy. Yes, yes, I totally get you with that. I'm the same, like complete opposite with my partner as well. Just a ball of energy in the morning. And I used to get so much joy from just like jumping on him and like being like, good morning. <laughs> and then I realized that that was actually like starting to backfire because he was getting so pissed off at me. So I was like, all right, I'll go and go for a run or something instead. Yeah. Um, all right, <laughs> next one. Favorite place to travel? Oh, Europe. So far, yeah, I, lo- I have loved every experience in Europe. I know I have been to Australia twice, and I love that too. Um, so definitely when I go back next time, I would like to go to Perth. I have never been there. Um, mm. And I've never done anything like outbacky at all. I've spent more like urban visits. But I love travel, period. Um, so... I think maybe I said Europe just because that's the one I've done the most and I'm the most mm. familiar with. Mm, okay. Um, what about which particular country in Europe stands out the most to you? We were in um, Prague once, the Czech Republic. That was mm. like insanely awesome. And, and, yeah. and like, so old with so new so many layers of culture and history and war and um and not quite as familiar like i feel like some countries like maybe like uh, germany and france there's something more familiar about those cultures and and that history than um something more eastern european uh, like the czech republic Mm, interesting how many coffees a day? Um, I drink espresso and I have two regulars and then two decafs. Yeah. Okay. So does that count as four? I guess. Oh, not really. Like two? It's, two and a bit? <laughs> it's 200 milligrams of caffeine. I know that. So I, I try to keep that. I try to keep the caffeine to a minimum. Hmm. <laughs> I love that you know the exact number. Oh, yes. You've measured it out. (laughs) Who is your inspiration? Oh, it's probably changed over the years, but you know who I really respect and who is a role model right now is you won't know her. She's this woman who is uh, a newscaster, a news anchor, and her name is Judy Woodruff. She just turned 77 years old and she is the anchor for a news program called the PBS news hour and PBS is our public television station here in the U S. Um, so it's not like a big network flashy cable station. 
And she is someone who has been around and has been a journalist and been doing the news since she was in her late twenties. And I just find her story so inspiring because I cannot imagine what it was like to be a woman, um, like in the sixties and the seventies, um, and like doing what she did, which is to interview world leaders, which is to compete against men back at a time when being a journalist was like being the weather girl only, or like doing puff pieces only. She is so down to earth. She is so, um, she really cares about journalism in the sense of like telling a fair, even unbiased story. And I just think she is a class act. And I think what she has been through as a woman like is so inspiring to me that she's overcome so much and um, she's so well-respected and she probably has had many opportunities to get like big, sexy jobs at big cable stations and earn like insane amounts of money. But she has stayed in this role that I think she probably feels like she can do her best work in. And like, I'm kind of making that story up. I have no idea why she just, you know, has done what she's done, but she's retiring at the end of this year. Um, and I just like, I like literally want to watch the news to see her and, and how she's going to interview people and how she's going to present certain things. I just like think so highly of her. Oh, that's such a uplifting, um, inspirational role model. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah. And final, final one, Lisa, if you could only do one hobby for the rest of your life, what would it be? Picking up heavy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you might say that. <laughs> um, I'm, Heavy deadlifts, deadlifts or squats? Deadlifts. Or, or something else. Definitely. I, I also, I really like doing like sled work. I like doing um, like uh, kettlebell work. I like doing, you know, kind of like dynamic ballistic stuff too. So just the whole, the athleticism of being in the gym is really my favorite. Amazing. Well, Lisa, we are at the end of the podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like we could have absolutely kept on going. I've had a blast whilst also, yeah, like hearing so much information, so much awareness and really practical tips for, for people to implement. So thank you for your time and thank you for sharing all of this wisdom with us. Oh, thank you, Chang. It was a pleasure to be with you. And there we are. My conversation with Dr. Lisa Lewis on understanding addiction in high performers. What an episode that was. How informative that was and how well-researched is Dr. Lisa Lewis. Oh, I loved every moment of that. I learned so much from it and I really hope that you did too. If you have any questions, if you have any comments or feedback, please let us know. Send either myself or Lisa, an email. I'll put our details in the podcast description. But otherwise, if you are enjoying the podcast, I would appreciate it so much if you did have a moment to leave a review, a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help to get the podcast out there and to give others the opportunity to be exposed to this information and to this community of support and inspiration that they could very well need in their life right now. All right, you have a shining week. 
Go and express your best each and every day. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.